Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. out there in archaeology podcast land this is your host dr alan garfinkel and we're going to rev up for episode 112 i'm interviewing tim wag he's a enthusiastic avocationalist of rock art the california missions and history also a staunch native american advocate he's going to pass on his perspective on how to understand native american theology california history and his appreciation for and respect for California rock art. Well, here we go, gang. This is episode 112 of the Rock Art Podcast. We are here again on the Archaeology Podcast platform, and we're pleased and honored to have Tim Wagg, who's our guest scholar. We're going to be talking about uh, rock art from the standpoint of Tim Wagg, who's a rock art enthusiast, but also talk about native California cosmology and religion and being an advocate for native California rights. So let, let's kick it off. Tim, it's a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, Dr. Garfinkel. I wanted to thank you. And frankly, I'm honored and humbled to be on your podcast. Well, thank you so, so much, Tim. Very grateful. Well, you know how we kick this off. The first segment I ask people to sort of get connected with you and and answer a question. The million dollar question is, how did you ever get involved with the study of history, the study of Native Americans, and even some enthusiasm with respect to the visiting and understanding of rock art? Okay. Well, I grew up going camping with my family. And frankly, there's a lot of history, especially we went camping in the Western U.S., a lot of, a lot of U.S. history. 
and frankly, a lot of indigenous native cultural history as well. And so it just became organic that this is what we did when we went on vacation. And it moved on to one particular year. I took my boys. I have two boys. They're growing up now. They were like five and seven years old. And it was just mm-hmm. a dad and his son's trip to Death Valley National Park. And I'd gone hit there myself as a kid. And my kids were fascinated by the entire desert environment. And of course, a number of our outings in Death Valley proper, Furnace Creek, we saw rock art sites. And of course, we had the same reaction that I think the vast majority of people have. Wow, in the middle of this relatively desolate place, somebody not only lived here, but had the energy and the spiritual motivation to record these images and geometric patterns and things like that. And you can't help but ask, who actually made these? And so Makes sense. the interest, fascination, and the quest began. Now, you told me offline when we were chatting that you've been advocate of Native Americans and also been a, you know, a popular student of history and then specifically an associate or liaison of a number of California missions. Tell us a bit about that, would you? You bet. Same thing, just like the fascination with American Indian culture, I had the same fascination with the California missions. And again, we can't say what, when we're out in the, let's call it in the wild, and you're observing things, we can't define what attracts us to these different things, but the California missions, again, much like the Native American rock art, had this fascinating attraction. Part of it was simply the fact that this was not from our era. This was not from our time. These were a different people. And though obviously they were homo sapiens, human beings, they lived in a different time and obviously lived in a different way. And I ended up taking my two boys on three different one-week trips to see all 21 California missions. And it couldn't help but rub rub off in the process of, in the beginning, was looking at the Spanish-style buildings, you know, all the arches that we're familiar with and the beauty. I always point out the great locations of the missions, San Diego, Monterey, Ventura, San Luis Obispo, Carmel, they got to pick all the great sites. They had their whole pick of California. But at the same time, as I often point out, because I'm a docent at three different missions in California, when I do my tours, the missions were gener- the Spanish missions of the California era were generally two Franciscans, six soldados de cuero, and a whole bunch of Indians. And that's who built the place. So obviously we knew a lot about the Franciscans. St. Junipero Serra. We knew a lot about the soldiers. And who do we not know a lot about? The Indians. The yep. Indians. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. So as we're well aware, there's a lot of controversy and embedded sort of adversarial posture between the mission of the missions and the nature of Native American lifeways. How do you deal with such a a complicated and controversial set of issues? 
Well, it's not easy. It's not simple. Nothing about this is. I like to point out that that with the advent Columbus Cortez, in 500 years, the Spanish managed to wipe out the vast majority of indigenous culture in the so-called Spanish empire. So there was this huge void and it was kind of unprecedented in history what the Spanish did over almost 350 years to the so-called new world. They pretty much largely, and again, you can spec, you know, we can research how much was malevolent versus benevolent, but we know that the diseases were a big part of the devastation that happened. And somehow in 500 years, we had a variety of extremely varied cultures throughout North, Central, and South America. And they often did not have a lot in common other than geographic location, but we managed to not, the Spanish did not care about the indigenous culture. They were looking at what was in it for the Spanish empire and they wiped the people out, the physical culture out, the languages out. Very few indigenous cultures survive to this day. So we now have this void to fill. And a lot of it begins with rock art because it's the first thing many Americans see when they're out looking at Indian cultural sites. They see the things they left behind. So it's baskets, it's sleep circles, and it's rock art. Absolutely. You're exactly right. Now, when I spoke to you offline, you you gave me an interesting, a fascinating and interesting perspective on rock art that I haven't, I don't think I've espoused on any of these podcasts. And that was to think about rock art as the way in which uh, one could educate the general public to peer into the indigenous cosmology, the religious theology, a better understanding of the conceptualization of native people and the natural world. Uh, maybe talk a bit about that, would you? Yeah. And again, in, in the process of doing mission tours, one of the things we do, yes, it's to educate the public. But of course, it's also to entertain the public because we know if, if you're giving a boring tour, no one pays attention, no one listens, no one comes back. So looking at the American Indian culture in the Western U.S., which is where I live, it became important to observe what non-Native, non-American Indian people found the most fascinating And one of those things was the rock art itself because it was something tangible. It was something you can look at. You know, wikiups, hakales, all these different dwellings that the Indians lived in, gone. I mean, the Spanish adobe buildings still here, but a lot of the Indian cultural physical presence is gone. What's not gone? The rock art. So that becomes the portal to, uh, let's just call it American tourists like myself, becoming fascinated with who made this art? Why did they make it? What does it mean? And that leads you down this wonderful rabbit hole of Indian culture. And that leads you from the most fascinating part, the indigenous rock art. And it pulls you into, because you wonder, 
what it means. You now learn about indigenous spiritual culture and hunting, hunter-gatherer lifestyle. All these different things are all pulled in by the rock art, including the fact that the subject matter of the rock art is often anamorphs and displays a certain aspect of the activities of the Indian culture, and that pulls you in to want to know more. Tim, what do you find most difficult in terms of trying to communicate or tangibly allow the general public to understand a bit about Native Americans? Well, it's something that I get from working with the tribes more than myself, because obviously, uh, as I like to point out, I'm a white man. I'm not an Indian, so I don't have their perspectives. So I listen to what they have to say. And often the biggest thing that the tribal members tell me is we want the public to know that we had a huge, enormous history of which I've talked about just now on on this podcast and that they're still here. They have their history and culture. And just like us, we have European ancestry. We have our European culture that means something to us, but they have their indigenous culture that means something to them. And they want people to know that we're still here and we're still part of the public presence and the public voice. Absolutely. Is there uh, something about trying to understand Native American perspective, heritage values that is difficult to translate or difficult to communicate to the general public? Yeah, absolutely. We had this wonderful opportunity. There were three major crossings of the land bridge you know, into Alaska and three separate tract migrations into North America. And these people came 10, 15, perhaps 20,000 years ago. They spread out rapidly along these continents, North America, Central America, South America, not inhabited by any Homo sapiens. It was crazy wild animals that they had never seen, giant sloths, woolly mammoths. I mean, it was it was like the lost world that they found and they figured out a way to live in it. And they had, again, 15,000 years to develop their cultures without any interference from different culture, The again, the white European culture. And so they, not surprisingly, with the same human brains as the Europeans had, they completely went on a different track and that's reflected in, in the differences in their culture. All the cultures, European indigenous have spiritual religious beliefs. Our European beliefs were very human centric. You had historical figures, you know, Jesus, Moses, Muhammad, the indigenous people were far more organic and anamorphic. And their deities tended to take the form of things you would find in nature. And that's really hard for people who are used to religions based on theoretically humans that actually existed on the planet versus, again, coyotes, all these different animals that are most frequently wrapped into the indigenous spiritual world. That was completely different. And that kind of was hard to grasp for the European culture. And that's why, again, I know in particular the Spanish missionaries, they didn't care about Indian culture. It was a pagan culture to them. That's what they called it. 
and they had no interest. They had no interest in preserving it. They had no interest in studying it. And so that leads us to where we are now. We have, we have to make up, we have some time to make up. And now we are interested and we're trying to fill in all the hole, help the tribes fill in all the holes in their cultural history. Great. Well, I think that's, that's it for the first segment. We'll uh, pick it up in the next. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm with Tim Wagg, historian, enthusiast, uh, Native American advocate, and rock art aficionado <laughs> of sorts. So, Tim, let's continue our conversation in your adventures and in your movement throughout California. You seen a bit of rock art? I have. And frankly, when I give presentations or have an opportunity to speak like this, I have to go with this most important message, which is that the Indian physical cultural sites are disappearing through natural degradation as as well as vandalism, graffiti, and things like that. So I really have to make this statement before I start talking in more detail about some of these things. We With the internet, to a large degree, it ruined a lot of sites because people would spout off to the public at large about sites, and the sites would get ruined. They would get devastated. So treat these Every Indian cultural site in the Western U.S., in California in particular, you need to treat them with the utmost respect. And I'm going to be detailed here because I have to be. I always am. It's my duty. Do not walk on cultural sites. Do not touch the items. Do not chalk the rock art. Do not splash it to bring out the color. No rubbings, no castings, no graffiti, no leaving trash. Correct the behavior of others and be respectful but adamant because we're not creating more of these sites 
and they are disappearing. And we have to show the, the appropriate respect for these sites. Cause I'm going to talk about a few places that, that you're not going to be able to find from my descriptions. But when people get fascinated with rock art, like me, you tend to listen to other people and you go out in the field to explore and in the beauty of the vast Western wilderness, you often find sensitive cultural sites. And in the beginning, what do we want to do? We want to touch them. We want to chalk them. We want to do all these things to them. And that's a no-no. And in fact, I took my wife and I both, and a lot of my friends took the BLM site steward class, which trained you over a long weekend to be a protector of these sensitive Indian cultural sites. And as one of my favorite BLM geologists pointed out, you can barely stick a shovel in the ground in California and not find Indian cultural artifacts. So it's really important that when you wander into them, that you treat them carefully, treat them with respect. And please, for goodness sake, do not post locations on the internet. That is just a recipe for destruction. Absolutely. Thanks for that. That We probably have not done enough of uh, advice or, or counsel to the listeners of the Rock Art Podcast. But Tim, those are all cautionary notes and very, very important in your uh, activities of visiting rock art sites, what have you learned? What have you found? What patterns sort of hit you? And which, which sites uh, do you find most engaging and why? That's a great question. It's a vast field. Again, for the same reasons I mentioned, the indigenous people spread out all over North and South America. And pretty much to a tribe, they had various types of, let's just call it Indian art forms. And again, you know, the major three, which we talk about on the California Rock Art Foundation site, which are petroglyphs, which is pecked rock, pictographs, which is painted rock. And then my new obsession, which again is the most sensitive of all, is we like to call it rock alignments, but it's also called geoglyphs or entanglios. Turns out in the Western U.S., there's a ton of them. And for people who don't know what that is, it's simply that on these beautiful flat areas of the Western U.S., and they actually call it, I'm blanking on the name of it. Maybe he can help me out here, Alan. The, um, desert pavements. Yeah, desert pavement. Thank you. On these desert pavement sites, the indigenous people did what, again, we might have done ourselves. They have this beautiful palette in the form of desert pavement. And what do they do? They align rocks to form, again, geometric shapes, anamorphs, and again, things we don't understand what they are. And again, I'm going to be very vague on this. These are the most sensitive sites of all because you can literally inadvertently approach a rock alignment site and kick a rock and move it before you even know you've hit the site. So you really have to exert extreme caution. But these are really fascinating because these are things that we had never heard of before. That was new to me. They're, fortunately, they're not well publicized, but it's common across the whole Western U.S. And 
They cover lots of ground. They're in the great open spaces of the great desert valleys. And it gives you the opportunity to spend a day walking through these remote locations that probably another person has not walked in that area in 10, 20, 30 years. And you get to see the, the beauty of nature as, as it was before European contact. And you get to find these beautiful, different geometric rock alignment shapes. And you get to look at them just like we do pictographs and petroglyphs and try to figure out what are they trying to tell us? What were they trying to express? And <laughs> Absolutely. it just opens yes. up your mind to this great imagination. Yes. Amazing. I know that in my work in the Western Mojave Desert, we have a few of those rock alignments that you're talking about. And there's a quite a lengthy one on a mesa in the uh, Western Mojave Desert. And I learned when I wrote a book about the uh, native people in that area, that that rock alignment was, it had worked so that it was a targeted alignment that showed, I believe it was the winter solstice sunset, because when one stood on that alignment and looked to the south, he would uh, see the sun setting along that line, which is rather remarkable. I hadn't realized that there was archaeoastronomical alignments like that. So that's that's that was a new one for me. Have you uh, seen anything like that? Yeah, and and frankly it makes a lot of sense. You know, today we have a GPS, we have GPSs in our phones. You know, the great Spanish you know, captains had various types of devices they used to follow the stars to navigate with. So of course, it makes total sense that and again, we often have to remind ourselves that the indigenous people were basically the same as us in terms of physical, mental attributes, just in a different environment. So they would have the same need to track the seasons and navigate and do all these things just like we're used to doing. And it makes complete sense that that's what they would do because they're very survival again particularly North America, which was largely hunter-gatherers, you had to move with the seasons, you had to move at the right time, and you were smart enough to figure out how to create a device that would tell you that. So in case, oops, I forgot, <laughs> well, my device is showing that it's time to now move up into the, you know, pinion pine hill country and start harvesting pine nuts. So it makes yeah. complete sense. Yeah, a number of cultures had what they call sun watchers, and I, I know that the uh, Chumash on the coast of California had a whole class of people who specialized in that area. But even in the far southern Sierras, there's uh, rock art paintings that are solstitial sites that when you stand in front of an image of the sun rising over a mountaintop, when you're there on the winter solstice sunrise on the horizon, of the highest mountain that's in that area, the sun sits as a standstill on that winter solstice sunrise for yeah, uh, several seconds to almost a minute. It's so surprising and it's so awe-inspiring that it's something I, I will never forget. When you experience that phenomenon standing in front of a rock art site and to see that phenomenon occurring, 
I'd say it borders on the supernatural. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I, it sounds like I'm agreeing with you with everything about everything, but that's because I am. I mean, part of it is just simply that they needed to know this information. And if all yes. the components of their system is still preserved, you can actually, it's one of those things where you can go out and test it. You don't actually have to look at it and say, gee, I wonder if it aligned this with that to allow them to do the other thing. You can actually, and this is what people do, right? I mean, just what you're talking about. You can experience these different solar, these different navigational celestial devices. And guess what, Alan, Dr. Garfinkel, we get to go out and see if it's true, see if they work. And nothing's more exciting than that. And frankly, you gain a great deal more respect for the indigenous people. And you start saying, hey, these guys are pretty smart. Yeah, these guys are pretty smart, aren't they? Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So I know that almost being a student of comparative religion, I think often about the significant similarities and significant differences between Euro-American religion and the cosmology or religious precepts of native religion. I think you've thought a bit about that, haven't you? I have. Yeah. How do you, how do you approach that subject so that your the general public might uh, have an inkling or, a, or at least a, you know, a, a smattering of an understanding on how that differs? Well, I, as I warned you when you asked me to come on, I pride myself on thinking a little bit differently. I think humans in general, again, indigenous, European, wherever on the planet, homo, homo sapiens on the planet, we had this spirituality built into us. And as witnessed by, again, because I'm, I am quite knowledgeable about California tribes in particular, they all had religious beliefs and they were all, many were quite different and they pursued it with a a fervor that I would say is equivalent to the religion, the major religions that we're used to because they are a product of their environment, just like the religions that we're so familiar with Again, Christianity, Islamism, Judaism, etc., and they had those same level of beliefs, and they just took on a different form because they came from a different background and lived in a different environment. Exactly, exactly. And so, what I what I think I'm hearing is that Native people lived in a world that was very different from the world that Euro Americans and and others, such as a contemporary industrial economy, is used to. And so the natural world, the world of animals and plants, rocks and water, etc., and the natural, the environment, became a, a capsule, a, a sort of a, a canvas for the nature of theology, the nature of their religion. And it was, and it was peppered with animal human figures. And when we talk about that, there was a a natural theology in the sense that the theology begins when animals were people 
and people were animals. And we go back to the creator deities in which the cosmos is configured. Does that make any sense? It does. And believe it or not, there's a Spanish missionary, and I'm blanking on his name right now. I have a book. He was, many of the Spanish Franciscans did translate the native languages so they could speak to the indigenous people in their own language. And believe it or not, there's one book called, and I'm going to butcher the name, it's Geningrich. That yeah. was the yeah. name of the language. And mm-hmm. I actually did a paper on comparing the beliefs that were captured by the missionaries from this particular tribe, compared it to the religions we're familiar with. Christ, again, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. And you know what? There's shocking similarities. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that really just goes to show the human mind works yeah. very similarly. And so that's, that's one of the things that I always pick up with is when we look at and visit rock art sites, we're getting sort of a, it's a freeze frame on the minds of, of people who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago. And it is a, a remarkable experience. And let's uh, close it off there. Okay, gang, I'll see you in the flip-flop. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, gang. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. This is segment three of our three-segment program with Tim Wagg. He's a rock art and historian enthusiast, a Native American advocate, and an all-around interesting guy. Tim, I want to close this out by asking you about maybe what, what was one of your most astounding or interesting experiences with rock art, where you began to discover things that began to make sense for you or gave you epiphanies about the way in which one might think about these uh, images and these constructions. Uh, Something that really sang your spirit and rang your chimes. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I have an amazing story that kind of was the one that started it all. Please. And for me personally, I link the indigenous people, their culture, and the rock art together for me they're they're part of the same package and i'm an avid mountain biker and i was biking in mountain biking in death valley <laughs> i was actually riding up echo canyon which i found out has some nasty nasty thorns that will destroy any mountain bike tire wow. and for those who know who echo where echo canyon is it's just outside of furnace creek And it's a beautiful 10 mile deep canyon with some amazing rock art. But I blew out my tire. I blew out my patch kits and I told everyone to keep riding without me. And I turned and did what we called the bicycle carry. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a long trip and it's just along the bottom of the bottom of Death Valley, you know, approaching back to Furnace Creek. And fortunately for me, and I know I'm going to, 
because I heard I heard Dr. Garfinkel correctly pronounce. I always called him the Timbishu Shoshone, but I know it's the wrong pronunciation. But Dr. Garfinkel, maybe you can give me the right pronunciation because I care about that. Okay, the the one about the, about the book, the Chinichnich. It's spelled T I M. Yeah, it's pronounced Chinichnich. Yes. Okay. That's why I hacked it. In any case, that tribe, <laughs> I'm walking past their sign at the reservation at the bottom of Death Valley near Furnace Creek and announced the uh-huh. name of the tribe. And uh-huh. it said, you ready for this? Yep. Visitors welcome. And I went, what the heck? <laughs> uh-huh. I'm like, I'm going to be waiting forever for my buddies to come back. So uh-huh. I made a left turn down the dirt road. Uh-huh. I found the sign that said office and I knocked on it uh-huh. and they couldn't be more friendly and inviting. Mm-hmm. I literally told of the story. My bike tires are popped. I'm pushing my bike back for miles. I saw your sign. It said, welcome. I came in and I didn't say this, but in my mind, I was thinking, dear God, I hope it's true that they're welcome uh-huh. and I was welcome. And lo and behold, they were. I ended up spending like four hours there. And the person who happened to be at the desk, her mom was a native Shoshone that lived Mm -hmm. in a tribe up above the charcoal kilns in in Wild Rose Canyon. Mm -hmm. And I've been to that camp behind the, again, we kind of have a good method of, of, tracking down the different Indian camps in the greater death Valley area. So I'd been to the spot where she grew up and that just blew my mind. And we got to talking. She introduced me to her 90 year old grandmother who was sharp as a tack. She did look 90 years old and I talked to her and I was grateful to meet her. She talked about her childhood. It was this crazy experience to actually talk to an indigenous person who lived essentially, you know, pre heavy European contact in the greater death Valley region. And they said, Hey, we happened to get onto surprise Canyon, which is a really famous Canyon on the, on the West side of the Panamint mountains. And it's prized as a crazy Jeep road and it terminates at 8,200 feet in the Panamint city mines. And they were talking about trying to close it to Jeep traffic, which frankly I was in favor of it because it went through a riparian habitat. And I said, you know, there's these beautiful pictograph sites right there in the heart of the silver mines. And I had my laptop with me and it was back in the day when they still had a CD drive. And I said, I can give you a ton of pictures of these rock art sites in Surprise Canyon that you could use to help with your argument to close it down to destructive Jeep traffic. And I went back to the campground, got my laptop, burned a bunch of bunch of CDs for them. I'm a prolific photographer, so I had tons of photos. But that really cemented the relationship. And that was my first relationship with the tribe. And I realized... Wow. Because I always I always got this impression from other people that tribes just didn't want to talk to non-tribal members. And this was the first time it was 
obvious this was not the case. They're happy to talk to anybody who's willing to look at, at their situation and maybe be able to be on their team in shaping government policies to preserve their tribal culture. And that was the beginning of me realizing I really love interacting with Indian tribes and all the, all the various conflicting and challenging social and economic conditions they deal with, including stuff like protecting their sacred sites. So that was where, that was literally where it began. Fabulous. Great story. So that was with a group called the Timbisha or Timbisha Shoshone, (laughs) which means red earth. That's what the word Timbisha means. And yeah, there's a, a handful of Timbisha Shoshone, they're federally recognized and they, their campsites were scattered throughout the Death Valley area and remarkable place, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So those painting sites up there at the head of Subprise Canyon have held my interest for about 50 years. I've only seen them in person once. I've written uh, two articles about them and uh, given one presentation. Anyways, there's a lot to say about those paintings. So interesting that you brought those up. Very much so. Very, very uh, remarkable panel of paintings. And there's several of them up there. I believe they're ghost dance paintings. That that one there is, is what it might be called a ghost dance painting. And I think it was done either in 1870 or 1890 or in that window of time. So anyways... We can talk about that on another on another podcast, <laughs> a, a whole a whole other set of interesting stories. Well, what else uh, would you like to share about the nature of your journey, Tim? Well, I think what's interesting again, I'll say it one more time. I I I warn doctor, I warn your doctor that I think differently from other people and. I personally, as a non-Native American, gosh knows I must have only European heritage in my genes. If you looked at me, that's what you'd assume. But for me personally, I, I began at one point before I got really involved with this to be offended when Indians were called Native Americans and I wasn't. I was born in Inglewood, California, and I considered myself a Native American. And then I kind of realized, despite skin coloring, there is a common history that we share as fellow Californians. And I think that's important because we are all, you know, the same species that just happened to get here to California at different times under different circumstances, but we have a lot more in common. And I like to think that we are fellow Californians. I feel like the Indian history is my history because I was conceived in California. I was born in California. I've explored and, and, and checked out every conceivable corner of California, much like a lot of the the Indian tribes did when they were trading and things like that. 
So I feel like we have that common, that common heritage of California. And I know that, you know, that in the tribal reservation schools, they get American history. And I feel like in the, in the uh, California public schools, we should get the indigenous tribal history and not in the way that we do it now, but in a more meaningful way to have it as an equally weighted, equally important history, because we're all, I believe we're all native Californians. If we were born here, grew up here, traveled here, raised kids here, again, just like the tribes did. So that's 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 a controversial point of view. No, but that's but, a that's a good pitch, Tim, and it's something that I'm so glad that you shared because it makes a lot of sense. I uh, spoke with the director and the developer, the manager of the Petroglyph Festival in Ridgecrest, which themed about American Indian educations, specifically California Indians that are from from that region. And that's the platform that she would like to expand and to piggyback with the festival. People, again, like you said at the very beginning, need to be entertained and educated in tandem. So with that in mind, I think we're on the same page. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you all for patching in today. And I hope you learned a bit about rock art, Indian education, and uh, even maybe a taste of history. Have a wonderful day. See you on the next one. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.